0: Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode doubles as both an episode of the main podcast and also a dip into Twin Peaks Cinema, which will become its own podcast uh, in the fall, its own stream at that point. But for now, I'm still including it mixed in with these episodes. So I'm going to be covering four films and capsules by Twin Peaks episode directors, people who directed episodes of season two of Twin Peaks. This includes Todd Holland's film, The Wizard, Graham Clifford's film, Francis, Ui Edel's film, Pay the Ghost, and Diane Keaton's film, Heaven. So it's an interesting, eclectic mix of like a kid's film that was tied in with a Nintendo's release in the late 80s, a biopic of a Hollywood movie star, a horror film from the 2010s, and then also this very odd experimental documentary uh, film by a famous actress. Uh, So if you have any thoughts on any of these, if you've seen these, or if this inspires you to go see them, and then you have some thoughts, uh, please send me some feedback, and I would love to share that on this podcast. On the previous episode, I covered the Ken Burns documentary, Mark Twain. Elsewhere on my website, I have continued my Mad Men Season 4 viewing diary with episodes 6 and 7, Waldorf stories and the suitcase. Suitcase is very notable episode, particularly for the characters of Don and Peggy. and it is the exact halfway point of the series, which I find fascinating. So I won't say more about it than that. I'm watching the series for the first time myself. so if you uh, either have seen the series before, or if you want to jump into a first time watch and catch up with my viewing diary, both approaches aren't cards. Just don't tell me anything about it because I don't know what's upcoming. On my Patreon, I offered episode 78 of that podcast with uh, Twin Peaks Cinema covering The Straight Story, the David Lynch film about a man who drives his lawnmower across country. I also included that in my opening the archive reading section and also Twin Peaks Reflections where I compared it to a storyline from the series Ben's Civil War Breakdown. Also touched on the characters of Jean and Dick and the locations of the Briggs throne and the orphanage. I put up four bonuses just uh, pretty much yesterday and the day before uh, to our reader viewer feedback episodes where I read uh, comments left by people who viewed my video series, particularly Journey Through Twin Peaks, but also other video essays as well, and uh, also comments on my site. So those topics include Art Spiegelman, and American Tale, Q2, Firewalk With Me Fan Edit, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Mark Frost Narratives, East German nostalgia, Lynchian Identity Loss, Judy's Nightmare, Shared Dreams, and The Lodge as Test Versus Failure. So a lot of Twin Peaks topics in there, if anything sounds kind of cryptic. I also included two uh, film capsule episodes where I just discuss certain films for a few minutes, just offering random thoughts. I don't usually summarize the plot. I just kind of dip in and offer some comments on what I saw. So this includes office space, and 80s, 90s office media, including Dilbert. uh, Toni Morrison's uh, documentary, The Spanish Civil War, in the film The Angel War Red. Uh, The documentary, And She Could Be Next, about uh, Rashida Tlaib and some other, uh, Stacey Abrams and other politicians who ran in 2018. Uh, Rick Steves' documentary on fascism, Terminator 2, Independence Day, Resurgence, uh, Irma Vep, Children of a Lesser God, Trumbo the Fugitive, JFK, Alien, Back to the Future, Great Expectations, Buck and the Preacher, and Recorder, The Marian Stokes Project. Fascinating documentary about a woman who recorded the news for 30 years and uh, eventually created a massive archive out of that. So you can hear all of that stuff on my Patreon. Definitely encourage you to join. Those are all available for a dollar a month, patrons. And for $5 a month, patrons, you can follow my Lost in Twin Peaks series. Uh, right as it comes out and the finale and firewalking are coming soon this summer so that's all there for those who want to jump to the next level let's now continue on of course i should note this podcast uh, will include spoilers for twin peaks in this case because i'm talking about films comparing them to twin peaks episodes some of which came late in the series so that's kind of inevitable in that sense and uh let's jump right into that now Video on a It's going to take a lot of guts. You can do it! A little magic. You're best! And the wizard. Fred Savage. The wizard. The Wizard came out in 1989, directed by Todd Holland. This is one of the closest films to Twin Peaks. Uh, Holland came, you know, more or less directly from this to Twin Peaks. I think about a year separates the release of this movie and his appearance on the set to shoot episode 11, which begins with that memorable shot through the ceiling tile. And uh, he then followed up with episode 20, uh, a few months later, which begins with Major Briggs' vision out in the woods, the thing, the little um, hazard sign spinning through space with the flames around it and stuff. And then that one ends with the hostage situation at Dead Dog Farm. So those are the episodes that he directed. The Wizard was his directorial debut, and he was a very young director, still in his 20s. It's produced like a promo for Nintendo, actually. It introduces, I think, Super Mario Bros. uh 3 it tells a story of a young boy suffering from PTSD um they make out like he's kind of autistic although don't think that's what he's supposed to be and he just wanders off a lot of times and the family wants to put him in a home so his older brother played by Fred Savage goes and rescues him and they go on a road trip and uh end up in Reno for a little while and then go from there on to Universal Studios in LA where there's like a big video game contest and the kid is a whiz as it turns out at video games. And so he plays against all these other kids and if he wins, then he gets to prove that he can do something, I guess, that, that they would keep him out of the home. It's, <laughs> that, that part of it isn't quite clear. His father is on the lookout for him. His father played by Bo Bridges and another older brother played by Christian Slater. And the whole family was torn apart when a little girl, uh, when their daughter, the little boy's twin sister, uh, drowned. And ever since then, he's been kind of incommunicative. I actually saw this in theaters when I was six years old with my mother and my cousin. So one of the rare 80s films that I can remember. Certainly, I think the only one of the films on this, uh, in, in this section that I saw in a theater, even including some of the later ones. So this is somewhat more difficult to connect to Twin Peaks in some ways. It's just sort of a whole genre apart and everything like that. But you can see similarities in the style of filmmaking, certainly, between Todd Holland's work on the show and his work here. There's a certain bombastic style he likes to employ with these over-the-top stylistic gestures. Nothing quite as crazy in The Wizard as you see in uh, Twin Peaks, but you do have like this opening montage of the boy walking through the desert and these almost abstracted shots of him doing that. He, he likes to have these bold openings. And he also enjoys corny humor and slapstick violence. There's a fair amount of that in episode 11 with Andy, some of his uh, shenanigans, I guess, with, with Lucy, where he's colliding with her and dropping the pornographic magazines and stuff like that. I can't remember if there's anything with Andy in episode 20, but certainly with uh, what's his name? The sw- sweaty con artist husband of Vivian, Ernie Niles, you know, they kind of play him up for laughs. He likes these kind of goofy over-the-top characters. And there's actually a character like that in the wizard who's chasing the little boy, who you see in Todd Holland's episode. He's the husband who comes into the orphanage looking for little Nicky when uh, Dick uh, sort of shoes them away. That scene in general, I think, is one of the most wizard-esque scenes in a Todd Holland episode because you have these two characters Looking for this little boy, in this case, looking for his background info rather than him directly, but kind of bumbling around in their investigation and and having to kind of run cover for themselves when other people question what they're doing. Also, I think the family dynamics with Hank and Norma. In episode 11, remind me of a lot of The Wizard, where you have like a lovably dysfunctional family. It's one of the more endearing exchanges between them, where it seems like Hank almost is maybe just a good doofusy guy, which of course he's not. But the, the way they play it off as they're preparing for M.T. Wentz to come to the restaurant definitely made me think of that. As far as the video game stuff goes, really only similarity I see there is just the design of episode 20, that of that opening sequence with the flame shooting up and the weird overheated jungle footage of uh, oversaturated footage zooming in on Major Briggs and the thing zooming towards the screen against a black star backdrop. That all has always felt very video game to me. Take that as you will. She challenged our rules. I thought we were supposed to be different, Harold. A group working together. Isn't that what this is about? What money and greed do to people? She fought for an ideal. How can I keep making movies when people are starving? She risked everything for what she believed in. Francis, I'm warning you. No, I'm warning you. Who do you think you are, God? Jessica Lang. Francis, based on a true story. Francis is another film that was released in 1982, starring Jessica Lange as the actress Frances Farmer, a famous actress of the 1930s who was involved in many radical currents of the time. Uh, she certainly was like a fellow traveler of many communists. She worked with the group theater, and then she had a falling out with, uh, after having an affair with Clifford Odette's and her career started to decline. Hollywood came down hard on her because she would not follow their rules. She started to suffer from mental illness. Now, to what extent that was something that was just happening on its own versus uh, conditioned by the the circumstances surrounding her. At any rate, she wound up in asylum. She bounced back and forth, lived with her mother, fought with her mother, was drugged up, was abused horribly in the asylums, ended up being lobotomized uh, or... Possibly, I don't know if it was ever proven, there was strong implications that that's what had happened. In this film, they cover her whole story. It's a biopic. This was one of the most striking of the films that I saw as part of this Twin Peaks cinema exploration. And certainly one whose resonances with Twin Peaks are the most poignant. And I was interested to discover, and I mean literally discover as I'm recording this, I pulled up the page to reference the cast and this jumped out at me. I'll read this little excerpt from the Wikipedia. The film was developed by the team who had made The Elephant Man, writers Eric Bergeron and Christopher DeVore, and producer Jonathan Sanger and Mel Brooks. Brooks was keen for David Lynch, who had directed The Elephant Man, to direct. However, Lynch signed an agreement with Universal. Sanger then suggested Graham Clifford, who was well-established as an editor, having notably having made several films with Robert Altman he's very bright and completely in love with the story said Brooks. So that's totally fascinating and I can see the connection very much there with the writers, even with the way the film is structured, with its sort of evolving structure of the way that we look at the character and way that's reflected in the form of the film, and also its use of this very personal story as a window into a broader uh, time period. In this case, the Depression and World War II era Hollywood versus late Victorian London of the Elephant Man and continental Europe and the scene where he's kidnapped and taken off to there uh so they're very talented at doing that type of work, and so that's a fascinating thing to learn uh that wasn't even going to be part of what I talked about the connections between francis and and twin Peaks, but there it is, you know David Lynch. They wanted David Lynch to direct this at at some point, which certainly would have been interesting. Graham Clifford directed one episode of Twin Peaks, just one single episode, episode 12, which I think is the most underrated possibly of the whole series. It's the one that has the trial in the middle or the hearing for Leland and Leo, and then it ends with the rescue of Audrey from One-Eyed Jacks and Donna going into uh, Harold's house and trying to steal the diary with Maddie. Interestingly, the Twin Peaks episode that he directed and Francis actually kind of open in a similar way. They both open with a lush, autumnal, northwestern landscape. Farmer grew up in Seattle, so the initial story takes place there. And this footage is followed by narrated monologue from the protagonist touching on spiritual insights as well as earthly details, including bedside experiences. In Cooper's case, it's chewing on an earplug after having a dream about eating a tasteless marshmallow. And in Francis's case, it's a little bit more elevated. She's thinking about how comfortable and happy she is lying in bed and wonders if this is divinity. It's part of an essay she's writing about: Is God real? Or does is God dead? actually is more where she goes with it. And this kind of launches her career and her notoriety. It was funny, watching this film, I uh, did not realize who she was, even though, you know, I'm a big movie buff. I love that era of films, but I hadn't seen any of her work and I was only loosely familiar with the name. So I didn't, the, the whole story as it unfolded was pretty much new to me. It actually wasn't something I was familiar with the details of at all. And so watching it unfold in that way was captivating and upsetting. And it reminded me of watching the Laura Palmer story unfold in a lot of ways throughout Twin Peaks. And so I think this very real person and this this fictional character of, of Laura, there's a real kind of connection there. And I think although Lynch was probably more directly inspired by Marilyn Monroe in Shaping Laura, there's a lot of Hollywood uh, actresses who very much serve as a template for this tragic figure that laura palmer embodies and laura of course is a part of episode 12 she's not on screen but she's talked about a lot and that feels like a strong connection it it feels like maybe that's one of the reasons that episode 12 is an episode that really gets laura in a way or gets at kind of the spirit or the feeling of laura and what she means to this town directed by the director of francis there are a few figures in francis who echo Harold, in a way. Harold is obviously a huge part of Graham Clifford's episode. Frances herself is a bit like Harold in her difficulty in surviving in the outside world, but also Frances's mother, who is eventually confined to her house and gone a little stir crazy there and uh, getting into clashes with Frances in in that home, that place that she keeps coming back to. Uh, she reminded me a little bit of Harold in that sense. And also there's a figure, partly fictionalized character, played by Sam Shepard, who's an on-and-off-again romantic partner to Francis and keeps trying to rescue her. That reminds me a little bit of Harold and his attachment to Laura. There's also a trial scene with a judge where the judge determines fairly loosely how to apply the law. In this case, it's to send this young woman away, viewing her as incapable of taking care of himself, herself. In episode 12, it's the judge freeing a older man who ends up uh, because he's, he says, you know, he can, he can look after himself. And, of course, he turns out to kill someone within a few days of that. So take from that what you will. And there's also a scene where Francis is rescued from a hospital where she's been drugged, a uh, flavor of Audrey being rescued from one-eyed jacks there as well. So there's these little touches throughout. But overall, I think it's just this idea of Francis as this tragic heroine and, and Laura Palmer as this tragic figure in Twin Peaks that connects these two works. I've been doing some research. Did you know that more children who disappear on Halloween don't ever come back? What if all of these missing children, what if they're all connected? What if there's something behind it? You can't keep beating yourself up. It won't bring them back. My son isn't dead. It has all the children. It's here. Till I know what happened to him, I am not going to stop looking. Pay hey, the Ghost is definitely the most recent film of any I'm discussing in this section. It uh, came out in 2015. Only one of these films to be uh, released in the 21st century. And there were other options for Uli Edel around the time of Twin Peaks. It was Body of Evidence, the 1992 NC-17 Madonna film. Last Exit to Brooklyn, the 1989 film. Very acclaimed couldn't find it, couldn't get my hands on it, unfortunately, uh, at least at the time that I was doing these uh, this, this survey. Christian F., uh, from 1981, which was one of his earliest films about a young teenage girl who gets thrust into this life of like corruption and sex and drugs in Berlin that was like a notorious film at the time and obviously would have made very direct parallels with Laura Palmer. Now, that said, the episode that Uli Edel directs of uh, Twin Peaks really doesn't have anything to do with Laura Palmer at all. This would have been a weird example of where you could draw connections to Twin Peaks as a whole from the director's work, but not to their own episode of Twin Peaks. Uh, so in some ways, Pay the Ghost might might be the best choice for this, even though the connections there are only kind of loose. Pay the Ghost, on the other hand, is a horror film. It takes place in New York. Uh, Nicolas Cage plays a scholar who is spending too much time working on his, I don't know if it's his PhD or what exactly, but he's not spending enough time with his family and the mother wants him to take the son out trick-or-treating so they go out to a halloween parade and the son disappears and so he spends the next year just descending into deep despair but still not giving up the search to find his son and then he starts getting clues that maybe his son is still alive that he wasn't kidnapped by a human but that uh, some sort of ghostly presence took him and that it's taken other kids as well, and that he only has till the next Halloween to rescue him. Now, this was released on... I don't know if it was released at all in theaters, but it was primarily released on demand, so it was not highly acclaimed. I thought it was, you know, fine genre film. Uh, Yeah, it didn't go anywhere you haven't seen these types of movies go a million times before, but I did like the element of looking into New York's history where there's like a woman who is a practicing a Celtic religion and uh the the townspeople, the villagers at the time of New Amsterdam gathered up on and murdered her and her children out of fear because there an epidemic had swept the village and she cursed their descendants, and that's what leads to this. So you often see this type of curse from the past coming back to haunt the present. I think often it's Native American legends. I thought this was interesting to see where it has the witchcraft element, but it's done with more of a reference to an old world, transmuted into the new world type of of story. That whole transition from European culture into early American colonial culture, I think, is always a rich topic that maybe doesn't get pulled up enough in this or other contexts. The reminders that I saw of Uli Edel's episode, which is episode 21, I should say, where Leo is awakened and races off in the woods after trying to kill Shelley, and uh, Windermere is fully introduced at the end of the episode. So the biggest similarities were with that scene where Leo is awakened and he's wandering around the house and Shelly's trying not to get killed and Bobby shows up. You have the scooter moving around in the, in Pay the Ghost, the little boy's scooter moving around without him on it, sort of like the wheelchair moving by itself. In episode 21, you have a clown mask that's uh, used to, to scare, for a scare effect, a knife attack. Uh, Plastic walls. Now that's interesting. That's right, because I I wrote that down and I'm I'm remembering what it means. There's a scene where Nicolas Cage goes down into the sewers, which serves as like a portal into this other spiritual realm where his son is being held. And there's all this sort of plastic draping over the walls and uh down there which evokes Leo's house where there's the attack and also uh, we have figures standing in silhouette frightening the characters both in the Nicolas Cage's house and in uh Leo's house in the in the Johnson household. And also the Wyndham Earl ending with the candles blowing out in the wind. Uh, you know, has a kind of a horror movie feel to it. So those are the elements I see here, just sort of general horror elements which Uli Edel employs in in both works. Someday maybe I'll get a chance to see Last Exit in Brooklyn or one of the other films and see if there's a similarity there as well. But I will end by noting that, uh, you know, Nicolas Cage himself is a link with the Lynchverse, uh, given his appearance in Wild at Heart. Uh-huh. I won't have to worry about getting fat anymore. (laughs) I can eat all I want. (laughs) I'll be like Burt Reynolds or, or any other star. I want to go to heaven. I'm ready to go anytime. See you in heaven. Hey! Heaven is a 1986, uh, I suppose you could call it documentary, experimental film by Diane Keaton. Very eccentric, over the top, wacky, all over the place. I watched it one time all the way through, but I tried to watch it twice. The first time I had rented it from Netflix, I was prepping to watch all these films by different Twin Peaks directors, and I thought, oh, you know, this sounds interesting. It's about people. It's interviews with people talking about their thoughts about the afterlife and death and life more generally and spirituality. And I thought, oh, maybe my mother will find this interesting. I'm going over to visit, so I take this. We put it on, and within three or four minutes, we're laughing so hard We're crying. We have to shut it off. It just seems completely unbearable. It's like characters shouting things at the camera, and then the camera moving back and forth, and somebody laughing off-kilter, and then a clip of somebody getting burned alive in an old film. and It just seems like a parody of a pretentious student film. So, you know, I said, I'll get back to this later. I did end up watching it later, and I actually enjoyed it more once I was able to get used to Diane Keaton style. She is not afraid to seem like a parody of artsy filmmaking, for better or worse. I don't know. It, it is what it is. I, I'm not gonna say she should have toned it down. Diane Keaton has a certain way of filmmaking, which if you've seen her episode of Twin Peaks, episode 22, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, It's very flamboyant. It's very unrestrained. To be less generous, it's very self-indulgent. But uh, it is memorable, that's for sure. And Heaven, I think... The interesting part of it is just what all of these people have to say about life and death and, and religion and God. There are a lot of interesting observations scattered throughout, and it's, it's plenty of poignant moments as well. People talking about their lost loved ones and so forth. And probably the greatest criticism you could level at the styles is that often it potentially gets in the way of this particularly interesting material. Now, as far as how this connects to Twin Peaks, I think the main connection is just the style Uh, the way that she directs this film and the way that she directs her episode. Any idea that occurs to her, it seems like, makes it into the finished product. That's just how it rolls. But she does have a very distinctive eye in terms of her visual style, her photography. She is a photographer before she was a filmmaker. That led her into filmmaking in some ways, I think. And you can see that sense in how she frames a lot of these shots, the background she uses. You know, these, these are mostly interviews with, I'd use the word ordinary, people and that they're not celebrities, although many are quite eccentric and offbeat, so not ordinary in that sense. Uh, the only celebrities I saw in there were Don King, and then I recognized the name Victoria Sellers, and I looked her up, and yeah, sure enough, she's Peter Sellers and Britt Eklund's daughter. So uh, she is in here somewhere as, I guess, like a late teen, early 20-something, because she was born in 1965, and the film came out in 86. As far as connections, again, to the the particulars of her episode, I guess you could connect the death mask, Caroline's death mask that Cooper finds on his bed, with Wyndham Earl's voice talking under it, and uh, that certainly relates to the themes of this of this documentary. One other thing that did jump out at me as uh, an amazing little coincidence is a character says every single person will be dead as as part of the narration, very typical... <laughs> bit of narration from this movie and uh it closes in on a calendar and i can't remember if it's like a single date or if it's the date circled on a monthly calendar but the date is february 24th which is of course the day that uh, laura's body was discovered if you enjoyed this podcast please consider rating reviewing and subscribing on apple Podcasts. in particular that's the biggest platform where people will find this stuff and if you want to donate if you want to uh, get extra content definitely consider becoming a patron on patreon.com there are hundreds of hours of episodes uh, on there that are not yet or maybe ever accessible uh, for, to the public here is a preview of what's in store for next week who were we who were we when we were who we were Will we have become if we die?